enlighten me Bitch, I be a boss, I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Demons leave them torch, I run my kingdom, call me sire We never taking L's, only lessons No, we never counting fails, only blessings Never stressing I said enlighten me I be a boss, I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Gang, they hyping me, rightfully I am stable, I am able, I am wealthy Full of health, on the rise, I got the belt You got a problem? Check yourself, bitch Hi, Peter Hi, Ren <laughs> Welcome to Enlighten Me, bitch Thank you so much for coming It's my pleasure, enlightening everybody That's my job You do, you're always enlightening everybody mm-hmm. you're a Very oh, yeah. smart man yeah. You're pretty smart <laughs> the only sign I have that I'm smart is that I'm realizing that I'm not that smart. <laughs> That's the smartest you can get is when you realize that you're really not that smart. That's when you know you're getting smarter. That's an interesting piece of advice. I'm always under, under I promote the notion that you're never too old or too good to stop learning. <laughs> yeah. Except when, except after a while, you can't retain anything you learned. <laughs> <laughs> is that because you're old? No, I. Th- you know what I think it is? I think it's because our brains are overloaded. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't. You have social media, yeah? Of course, yes. Yeah, of course. You're active on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I'm actually on Instagram too, but I don't. Re- I don't know why. Yeah, I, just... I follow your Instagram account. It's mostly drawings. Yeah, I don't do that much on it. I, I probably should do more, but. Do you look at it a lot? No. Yeah, I, I think I look. I think I look at it too much. Mm. I definitely start to. My brain gets all jumbled when I'm on social media too much. I have to take a break of it, a lot. What do you put on Instagram? Photos of myself usually. Huh. Well, an actor. Promoting right. myself. Right. You just do your drawings. Yeah, and I, um, if I have something pithy to say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Everyone wants to sound smart. Yeah. I mean, some people just want to show their boobs and their ass, but. Yeah. And their abs, whatever. Yeah. I, not you. Not me, none of <laughs> So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Um, we're obviously friends. You mm-hmm. live seven minutes from me, which is incredible. Uh, you invited me to an event at your house last week. So I thought, what a perfect time to have you on. I, we're fresh off of an event. Um, I will say, Peter, if you didn't live seven minutes from me, I don't know if I would have come to your house. It was very convenient. Is, is that is seven, <laughs> seven minutes is like your outside limit? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's not, you know, it takes an hour to get to West Hollywood from Santa Monica yeah. and, you know, in 530 traffic. So I was very appreciative to learn that you lived seven minutes from me. You know, I moved there and invited you to that purely so I could get on the podcast. <laughs> I knew it. I rented the house. It's not really mine. <laughs> you actually live on a fantastic street. You got a little yeah. cul-de-sac going. There's a creek in the middle of, mm-hmm. of all the houses. It's very, it's very serene back there. You don't even feel like you're in L.A. Yeah. You know, that's the ultimate compliment of any neighborhood in L.A. You don't feel like you're even in L.A. <laughs> well, the event that you had at your house was so cool. Thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure. I felt honored to be there. Um, it was a talk with Sean Carroll, who wrote The Big Picture, mm-hmm. which have you read his book? No. Have you? I hadn't read it either, but it's about the universe and a mindset and all those kinds of things, which I love talking about that. I love learning about that. So I, I thought it was so cool. Everything that he was talking about, one of the most interesting things I thought he said was, you know, he's a quantum physicist. So that is a little foreign to me, all the science of it all. And I was just trying to keep up the whole time. So you're not talking. a quantum physicist? <laughs> yeah, but well, that, that's my day job. Yeah, there's still time. <laughs> Podcaster by night. Yeah. Scientist by day. <laughs> um, no, but he was saying one of the most interesting things that I thought he said was, you know, it's interesting how we can scramble eggs, but we can't unscramble them. Mm. And that made me think. Kind of like, hmm. And then you asked him, he he made a reference about a glass of wine right. falling. And you asked him, does he just think about those things every time he does something? Yeah. Well, what I was what I was really interested in was if you have that much of a cosmic view, if your view is of the universe, if you deal with the entire universe all the time, if you knock over a glass of wine. Do you get annoyed? 
Right. I mean, you know, like, is it so small that you're able to just kind of gloss over virtually any annoying thing that you do? Right. Because I was think I was trying to find the advantages of being somebody who thinks in terms like he does. Right. It's totally out of my element, but it was very cool to hear him talk. And then saying that, you know, when you put cream in your coffee, you're adding matter to the coffee. And certain scientists that he knows feel bad about putting cream in their coffee. So that would, you know, go under the realm of, is that something that you think about? Do you just not put cream in your coffee because you don't want to add matter? But how could you possibly live like that? Yeah. Um, I find it hard enough living the way I do, you know, just with my, <laughs> with my thoughts, you know, I like know. I mean, on a grand scale. Like, I don't understand the universe. Yeah. Like, just the whole idea that the universe is finite. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, when it ends, what's there? What's after that? Isn't yeah. that the universe too? What if, is it just like a brick wall or like? Right. Do you believe in the afterlife? Are you spiritual no. at all? No, no. you don't. See, I'm I do. Spi- I- I'm, I'm not. I'm not religious and I'm not spiritual at all. I, you know, like I'm kind of proud to admit that. Everybody says, oh, but uh, I don't, I'm, um, you know, I'm not into religion, but I'm really spiritual. I'm not. <laughs> and that's perfectly okay. Yeah. You know, I'm here. You know, I'm going to. Yeah. You, know, you think this... when, when we die, we just go to the ground? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Sorry, Ren. <laughs> My brother just died, so I I am spiritual. I I tend Uh, to believe on the side that we do have an afterlife and we can communicate with dead people. Well, In certain ways, you know, obviously, like, you can't hear what they're saying, but, you know, different signs and stuff. So I do, but it's okay. We don't agree. I mean, that's a good person to talk to. Yeah. I actually think it's incredible that we have two different viewpoints. That's cool. I want to talk to more people who don't have the same view as me because— I think you can learn things from people who don't agree with you. Wouldn't that be nice if people all had <laughs> such an attitude as Ren Woods? <laughs> Peter, stop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that event was very cool. And Linda Opes was there who produced Interstellar, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Contact, all incredible movies. And Yeah, and Nora Ephron was her best friend. Right. So incredible. I love. She was dressed from head to toe in Fendi. It's like, yes. You're embodying everything I want to be when I am your age. She's a very sharp lady, though. She is so smart, you can't believe it. I mean, so smart. I should tell you the story of how I met her. Please, do tell me. I was at a dinner party. I didn't know who Linda Opst was. I was at a dinner party with all these people I didn't really know. Yes. But they were all Hollywood people. Mm-hmm. All show busy. And one, this one woman at a certain point, I'm kind of bored at this point, and yeah. this one woman all of a sudden says, um, oh, God, if I have to sit through another Woody Allen movie, I'll kill myself. <laughs> so that's my cue to jump in, you know. So I said, you know, I don't feel like Woody owes me anything. You know, like even after, if he'd just done Bananas, that would have been enough. You know, like if he, that yeah. was the only movie he'd ever done, that would have been fine. Right. He didn't have to write. Four of the greatest screenplays of all time. That was all just gravy. Right. You know, I didn't feel like he owed me that, but he did it anyway. You know, he didn't have to, you know, write like six other movies that are small and perfect and absolutely brilliant, you know. Like, he didn't have to do all that, but, you know, he doesn't owe me anything. You know, it's kind of like the way people say Paul McCartney never wrote a good song after the Beatles. I was like, you know, pretty much after all my loving, me and Paul were good. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he didn't have to do anything else. So um, everybody was kind of like, their eyes were like, it went silent as I was going through this very calm litany. All right. And then later, Linda Obst walks up to me and introduces herself and says, way to stick it to that fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and That's we became incredible. fast friends from then on. That's incredible. I mean, you did tell a Pulitzer Prize winning poet that they don't rhyme enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know. (laughs) That was incredible. Love to hear that. 
Yeah. You just say what you fucking feel, and that's why I love you, Peter. Well, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to be offensive, but you know. no, no, you're I not was, offensive. I was offended that at, I was trying to be offensive towards that woman. I mean, I was, like, <laughs> I was on the attack you... because I stand up for Woody, and this was before all his, you know, really big problems. Right. right. Actually, this was, you know, after the Sunyi business came out, but you know, it all kind of died down, you know, yeah. and everything like that. He's a friend, yeah, of yours. Woody? Yeah. No, I've had drinks with him. Had drinks with him. I used to have a deal, a development deal with DreamWorks. Mm -hmm. And um, I said to Jeffrey Katzenberg one day, I said, you know, I got this idea for a movie, and I think it would be a really good one that I could write with Woody Allen. And he goes, yeah, I'm sure it would, Peter. <laughs> I said, do you think that's, you can make that happen? You know I, what? That's what Hollywood is. It's just people telling you, yeah, yeah, that's great, and then never calling you again. <laughs> but I said, Jeffrey, can you think you can make that happen? And he goes, he rolls his eyes. And then, like, two weeks later, I get a phone call from Woody Allen's assistant that he's at the Beverly Wilshire, and he'd be happy to have a drink with you. Incredible. Yeah. Nothing was, ever came of the project? No, he wrote me the nicest note. Oh. Because I told him the idea, mm -hmm. and um, the idea was about a southern girl, um, like me, like you, except from <laughs> except from more of like a a middle kind of background, you know, like a kind of. Anyway, she's from Alabama, a girl from Alabama, Alabama, in high school, who knows for a fact that in a previous life she was Sigmund Freud. Oh, you told me about this idea. This is an incredible idea. Yeah, and she's constantly talking kids off the ledge, but she doesn't want to live her life like Sigmund Freud again. Wow. Because it was horrible dealing in everybody's problems. She just wants to have fun. Of course. How, um, do, how do you come up with these ideas? I don't know. I don't know. Have it you ever been to Alabama? To no. Yes. yes. You have? Yes. Yes, I went to... Um, I went to Auburn University and spoke there once. That was very beautiful. And I went to um, the 40th anniversary of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I give a lot of money to. Oh, Well, that's money nice. to. Yeah. Lot pe nice. Other people give a lot of money, but they yeah. invited me. So. Well, that's great. And it was really great. Nice to be charitable. So anyway, at a certain point, I you know told Woody this story and goes, and he goes, so how do we get her in trouble? And all I could focus on was the word we. Oh, my God. He said we. Like, we're going to do this together. Yeah. And, you know, he flew back to New York, and he wrote me just like a really nice note delineating, like, what his schedule was like for the next two years. And he said, I really kind of like the idea, and I, you know, I welcome you to just send me drafts, and I can, you know, it was, it was worth it totally for that. Yeah, of course, to get a nice note. From a huge director? Yeah. Of course. I mean, I I didn't expect him to be someone who takes time out of their day to write a note to anybody. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it. Was, I mean, he was incredibly attentive and, and cordial. And eventually, after he started enjoying himself, yeah. you know, he was funny. Um, but it was great that he didn't know me from Seinfeld. Right. You know, it was just... You were just some other guy who was yeah, pitching him something. Guy. Yeah. Did so, he not watch Seinfeld? No. I asked him. He said he never saw an episode. Oh, wow. Which I understand. I mean, only... Well, that's you know, cool. He he, he, that means he took the meeting blind. Yeah. He works and works and works. And then he watches Knicks and Yankees games, you know. Which is what you do. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah. You love sports. I do love sports. <laughs> you always have on the coolest sneakers every time I see you. Yeah, well, it's that's hard work. Yeah. Because, you know, Reebok pumps are really hard to track down. They're, they're like they sell out in like a second. Reeboks? Yeah, believe it or not, Reebok pumps. I went on to look again and they only have sizes like nine and under. I mean that's... like you know, like all the like what am I, Fred Flintstone? I mean, <laughs> you know. <I'm... laughs> oh my god, that's what size shoe do you wear? Um, 11. That's a normal size. Yeah. I feel like my dad, my brother, every guy I know wears a size 11 shoe. Like 10 or 11 is pretty yeah, like but, and standard. And that's why they sell out so fast. Because oh. everybody's got 
the same You'd foot. think that they'd mass produce those sizes. I don't get it either. <laughs> it's it's it. ludicrous. I feel like calling them up and saying, what is the deal? <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I never pegged you for a sneakerhead, but. Um, I kind of, yeah, I kind of, not a, a big sneakerhead, but I always, yeah, I always like kind of stuck to a brand. I wore Stan Smith Adidas for yeah. years. Uh-huh. And, um. Then in playing basketball, I'd hurt my ankle so many times that I started wearing high tops just mm-hmm. to walk, you know, just oh, because yeah, right. I didn't want to like step on a pebble on the street and have my ankle go. Yeah. You know, well, get that little. These days, sneakers are back in as not formal wear, yeah. but people are just more casual now. Yeah. You know, I wear sneakers with a dress sometimes. Wow, look at you. Look at me just being progressive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, like you said, for everyone who's listening who doesn't know who Peter is, you were a writer and producer on Seinfeld, which if you don't know what that show is, you've been living under a rock. <laughs> but I have to tell you, I don't even know if I've ever told you this. Um, when I was a kid, my dad was one of those people who didn't really relate to kids that much. And whenever I wanted to hang out with him, I had to do adult activities with him, which meant watching Seinfeld, mm. because that's what my dad liked to do. So I watched Seinfeld from an early age on and became a fan of it. So it was really incredible when we met because your writing is obviously incredible. I mean, I don't how many seasons did it run? Um, technically nine. Nine, yeah. But I didn't, I mean, we met doing stand-up at the improv. Right. And, and when I was a kid, I never had in my head, I never looked at Jerry Seinfeld and said, oh, that's what I want to do. I kind of just fell into doing stand-up. But I guess Seinfeld was my first taste of like, oh, that's a comedian and that's what a comedian does. Right. Because I otherwise never heard of a comedian. Right. You know? Yeah, it's not a big... It's not a big profession in South Carolina. It is not. I, there are no comedians in South Carolina. I think Aziz Ansari is from South Carolina. Really? Yeah, he's from Spartanburg. But I don't know him personally, mm. and I have never met him. And I did certainly didn't know who he was when I was a child. So Jerry Seinfeld was really the only comedian I knew of. Yeah. I didn't know that many comedians growing up either. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't like really into show business or anything like that, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I hardly watch, I liked Get Smart. Oh, yeah. And I thought that, like, that was really funny. Yeah. But I didn't watch a bunch of sitcoms and, you know, like there weren't a million comedians who, you know, like, I know my parents thought like Buddy Hackett was hysterical. But, (laughs) you know, like when I was in college and, you know, I, started being around these people who had watched shows like this and you know like bill cosby would be on the tonight show right i'd watch and i go how is this funny <laughs> I, i'm not jumping you know on the anti-cosby bandwagon you know whatever he did you know that's right that's over here mm-hmm. as, but as far as what he does as a comedian i never got it yeah and yeah, he's not my particular style of comedy either. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I got into show business not till I was like 30 in my 30s. You know, I yeah. never dreamed of it. I want I was more interested in journalism and actually writing full sentences as opposed to scripts. Right. And so, you know, and doing stand up as late as I started, which is only like 6 years ago, I don't feel like this kind of obligation to love the those that came before <laughs> you right. know like i think i'm more objective about it you know like of course. and i admire that that jerry and chris rock could talk about bill cosby special which i heard them do once and say could you believe he's still doing that kind of material i mean like really idolizing him and you know i kind of admire that that they idolize their people but in the same way, I feel like a little free to not to not think that some of these people are so great. Of course, you well, know, like Richard Pryor. I love Richard Pryor. He's li- the greatest. That's the only, That's like the first. He and Woody Allen's stand up are the first two stand ups that I thought, wow, these guys are out of this world. I agree on the Richard Pryor. I grew no, up man. watching him as well. 
hilarious. I mean, I had two albums almost completely memorized. Wow. And my, I, I still have friends and we talk in Richard Pryor stuff, you know, like, <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, to me, like, I remember after, just after college when Richard Pryor burned himself and he was in the hospital and it was touch and go for a while, I was in Europe. Yeah. I was taking my post-collegiate, you know, Europe trip and like trying to read the the newspapers all over all over Europe to keep up with how Richard Pryor was doing. Yeah. And then I bumped, then I met him at something. This was maybe two years before he died, and I just told him how much I meant it. He meant to me, and he was like really appreciative, and it was like a very kind of bittersweet, but oh. but you know, great moment, and oh. I get goosebumps thinking about it. Well, I, you wrote a piece about meeting your idols. Yeah, and that was in the L.A. Times. Yeah, and you wrote that piece because. A lot of people idolize these celebrities, these mm. comedians, actors, whoever, and then they meet them and find out they're an asshole. Yeah, or they're really disappointed. I mean, it's not – I mean, asshole is overstating it. They, they're <laughs> just disappointed that they're human beings. Right. You know? So your point of the article was maybe you don't want to meet your idol. No, my point was you should want to meet your idol. So you can find out that they're a real human? Just because, you know – they're your heroes. It's nice to meet them. But be prepared to be disappointed. Well, not necessarily be prepared to be disappointed, but maybe prepare yourself to not have ridiculous expectations. You know, these are flesh and blood. Totally agree. Which we were talking about at your house, the victim mentality. Yeah. Which we both yeah. hate the victim mentality. Uh, the worst. Just the worst. Take responsibility for yourself, mm. your own actions. You, everything that's happening around you is a reflection of how you feel about yourself. And this person isn't doing that to you. You can change all of that. You don't, right. you know? Absolutely. I mean, the whole, I mean, people actually want to be a victim. Like, gives an excuse for everything. I hate it so much. I went to see the movie Psycho for the yeah. first time, and I was so scared at night that I ran across <laughs> the mall just to get to the library. <laughs> yeah, the only time I've ever un felt unsafe is if I'm in a parking garage and there's a creepy man kind of yeah. like lurking behind me. That's really the only times I feel unsafe. I'm, I'm pretty alert and aware of my surroundings, mm. and I know that I'm in control. I think when you change your mindset yeah. to that. You, you have less of the victim. And you're usually, you're usually packing an AK anyway, so. Listen, honey, I'm from the South. Yeah. Got an AK, pistol, everything. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sometimes it's tempting. <laughs> Always, if I wasn't an actor, I think I'd want to be in the CIA. I'm so infatuated with that. I love that stuff, too. In another life, I would definitely I, want to be a CIA agent. For or, sure. Or, or FBI or something like that. Oh, for sure. It it's would so be cool. so much fun. You were saying that you didn't really have a taste of showbiz when you were a kid. My only experience with showbiz when I was a kid was because, you know, there's no movies being filmed in South Carolina except for The Patriot with Mel Gibson. You remember that movie? Mm -hmm. That one was filmed in my hometown just about a couple miles from my house. And I wanted to be an actor so badly. I think I was probably 10 or 11, and I begged my mom to take me to audition for the Patriot. And, you know, there was like a line of hundreds of people really? wrapped around the How corner. How far away was it from where you lived? Um, the audition, I think, was maybe like 15, 20 minutes from my house. Wow. And my mom refused. She was like, I am not waiting in a line so that you can be an extra in a movie. You may not even be able to see yourself. You know, it's just like there's like hundreds of people. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but there's so many yeah, people I mean, I in, in all those scenes or whatever. Yeah. And she refused. And I was like, you know, I was crying. I was like, why, mom? My mom said that she didn't want to have a child actor. She wasn't going to raise a child actor because she was afraid I would turn out insane. And it's like, well, congratulations. That happened anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> The Big Chill, I think, was shot in South Carolina. Did you ever see no, that? No, it was shot in... Charlotte, North Carolina, because there's a cafe in Charlotte called The Big Chill, and they have all this oh, memorabilia really? from the oh, movie. Okay. I mean, I don't know if it's actual memorabilia, but they kind of recreated the vibe. North, North, South. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. Um, what was it like writing on Seinfeld? 
Um, it was so many things. In some ways, it was like um, my first thought is that it was like going back to college. It was like getting another shot at college, except that the work was much harder. But, you know, you got to hang out with, like, cool, fun people all the time. You had tons of laughs. And, you know, every casting session was like a new freshman crop. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we had a blast, and it was so much fun. And it was like, you know, and at the same time, you know, that's what made it kind of harrowing because it was, you know, this this wild ride and you know you had to hang on you know i mean the first two years i was there every the first year i was there the t- the other writers that i was hired with were the, were all fired the second year the the new writers that were brought on all let go after that season wow cut I mean, throat it was you know you really wanted to survive of course and, and i think it's i think any writers room is like that there was no room no, no writer's room. We it, had no writer's room. So it was... You were on your own. Oh. You You pitched your ideas to Jerry and Larry. They, you know, mainly J- Larry would say, I love that. I, You know, like your ideas would be like, okay, here are my Kramer stories. Here are my Elaine stories. Here are my Jerry stories. And so you'd write, you know, a six-page scene and you would submit the scene to them or do you no, do a whole episode? No, I would episode? just talk to them about it. Oh. And then they would go off and say... You know, you go off and write, and then you turn in a draft. And you're doing it, a, a draft of an entire episode. Yeah, it's nothing like the way things are now. Or then, I mean, it's probably the only show that didn't have a room. Wow. You know, we never had the, you know, I don't think I would have survived if I had to sit there and, you know, try to sell jokes till 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> like some kind of overpaid Willie Loman, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting hearing that because, you know, with I have one writing partner who we write on our own and then we kind of combine it. And then, you know, I've got another writing partner where we sit there together and and write, but I get more done with Mm. the writing partner who, where we write separately and then send our stuff to each other and then combine it in that way. I guess everybody works differently, but. Yeah, everybody works differently. But, you know, I mean, I, I wrote for a newspaper. That was my first job. So. Yeah. How did you even get the job on Seinfeld? Um, it's amazing. Um, I met Larry David when I lived in New York. I met him twice. Mm-hmm. I had a summer share house in the Hamptons oh, one look, year. Oh, and, look at you, Peter Fancy. Yeah. And the uh, somebody brought Larry out as a guest. Oh. Um, so he was there for a day, and we all, you know, we hung out that day and went out to dinner. And I'd heard of Larry. You so know. your advice to everyone is get a summer share house. So you can network and meet people. <laughs> That's one piece of advice. Yes. <laughs> so then um, I, I, you know, I saw him again at some party or something like that. But mm-hmm. then um, I moved to LA for just for kind of a change of life. Of course. And um, about a year in, I bump into Larry on the street, and that's the key two words is bump into because everything's luck. Remember that it's all about luck. Mm-hmm. So, I'm at the right place at the right time. Yes. So you got to say totally it yourself. Totally got lucky. Yep. And you got to get do whatever you can to increase the chances of getting lucky. So leave your house. So, <laughs> yeah, which I don't do anymore. But yeah. Um, so uh, Larry says to me, uh, you know, I'm doing this little TV show with Jerry Seinfeld. Maybe you could write a script. <laughs> your impression is on par. <laughs> And, he sounds uh, just like that. <laughs> and uh, I guess Larry didn't know that I had never written a script before. Oh. You know, I'd written articles. You know, I was I was at that point I was a freelance magazine writer. Right. So um, were you under pressure or were you happy to take on the challenge? I didn't take on the challenge. Oh, you Jerry, told him to fuck off. Larry, uh, no, no. Larry asked me for a writing sample, and I gave him an article I wrote in the New York Times. Wow. It was about a day I spent in New York after a breakup and I wasn't well grounded in planning solo weekends because my girlfriend at the time was at Yale Business School. So I'd been going up there every weekend. Hmm. And um, 
so after the breakup, I you know I didn't really know what to do with myself for a full weekend. So I'm like walking out, and um, I see this guy who I think is um, one of the reporters on ABC News. And when I get up close, it's not him. And my friends and I in New York were unbelievably great at celebrity spots in New York. You know, like real obscure ones. Mm-hmm. So the I was hole in, in the walls. Yeah, so it was really annoying. So I spent the entire day, I decided, I'm going to walk around the city till I spot a celebrity, and then, I, then I'll come home. <laughs> and that was, what the Peter. Whole, that was what the whole article was. And it was, but, but <laughs> most of the article was um, like digressions about life and love in New York. Oh, well, that's cool. And Did you spot a celebrity? I was on my way home. I had quit. And then I spotted a celebrity. How many hours did this take? I feel like, especially in a place like New York or L.A., I'd be walking around for days. It it took about... They hide. From about 10.30 to about 4.30, 5 o'clock. It's actually not that But, that you know, long. I mean, my friends and I, we, like, we could spot, like, really, like, you know, writers that you wouldn't know of. Oh, God, I'm or... so bad at this. Oh. Halle Berry was in front of me one time, and I had no clue it was even her. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just, like, it goes, I just, I'm not even, I'm not looking for it, so I, I guess that's why wow, that's I don't so notice. Funny. I'd notice Halle Berry. I, I, I didn't notice. Yeah. I felt stupid afterwards, but, you know, well, whatever. You just don't know. Like, sometimes they're dressed, like, I like to play yeah. that game, like, homeless or famous. Yeah. Sometimes they're dressed like they're homeless. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. I don't judge. Um, so that's anyway, cool. I, uh, so apparently I found out that Larry had been making that offer, same offer to, you know, hand in writing samples that he could pass on to Jerry to several people. And uh, Jerry just really liked the article, so I got a chance to write a script. That's incredible. So Next thing you know, I was loaded. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Um, I'm still getting paid for that script. Like, I, I, it's unbelievable. How, the residuals are the real deal. Yeah, I don't As know. Like, I got a check from Lionsgate yesterday for $10.89, so. <laughs> I don't know how people, sure. how do people go to the mailbox with no hope of getting a residual check? I don't know. Mine aren't as big as yours yet, but they yeah. do come. <laughs> how do people... How, how do people put up with the fact that the work they did for 20 years ago is not paying any more money? I don't understand it. How do they live like that? Because, Peter, they're not as great as you are. <laughs> they're not as lucky. Not as lucky. You just you have the mindset that they're coming, so they're coming. <laughs> do you think your advice to people is just write what you know? Because you didn't try to put yourself in any kind of category when Larry David asked you mm. for that script. You just simply gave him what you had, and he said, great, we love you. Do you think that if you would have tried to write what he wanted, then it would have gone differently? Um, yes. I think it would have gone much more much differently. Um, I'm very mixed feelings about this write what you know idea. Okay. You know, I mean, obviously you can inject a lot of really good detail and things like that into writing what you know. But at the same time, if you're writing something fictional, I think you should make it up. Well, of course, <laughs> it's fictional. Yeah. I think... So, you know, like, I wonder how many writers out there wrote something fictional that they were too ashamed to admit was real. Well, I mean, you know, there's all that talk, you know, for years, like, you know, Philip Roth and everything like yeah. that about how autobiographical his stuff was. I mean, I think the only person who you can say is completely not autobiographical is like Stephen King. Right. Who's a genius, by the way. You know, the, he t- just because he turns person. out a book every 30 minutes doesn't mean that he's not an absolute genius. You know, like there's that image of the writer who's, you know, like spending seven years poring over this one novel, you know, and and he's turning them out, right. you know, like 900 pages at a time every year. And they're all great. Yeah. You know, everything he does is amazing. Wow. And there's a lot of pressure when you write something that does so well. There's pressure yeah. to live up to that. 
Do you think that Stephen King just says, fuck the pressure? I'm just, I mean, he cranks out material. Yeah. um, He probably doesn't feel that much pressure anymore. At a certain point, it just, fuck it, right? And of course, he had that incredibly horrible accident where he was run over by a car. And so, I mean, he probably feels lucky to be alive, no less lucky to be writing. Of course. Yeah, accidents like that can change your perspective. Actually, I think it should be lucky to be writing, no less lucky to be alive. Which way should I go? Anyway. (laughs) When I was leaving your house, you said to me, did you see the Basquiat? Peter, it was the first fucking thing I saw when I walked into your house. You have a Jean-Michel Basquiat in your home. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. I love it. I know a lot about art, so I I thought it was the coolest thing. Yeah, I, I just, you know, it's, I mean, it's a drawing. You know, yeah. It's not like one of his big paintings, yeah, but it's a drawing. Who cares? It's, yeah. He made it. It's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, and it's got kind of a JFK theme to it. It's and, very cool. And there's kind of a picture that's of a face that's basically Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just uh, got it at the exact right time. Um Don't give out my address. People will come see I would it. never give out your address. Oh, shit. <laughs> You know he's part of the Twenty Seven Club. He does. He um. Yeah. He died of a heroin overdose when he was twenty seven. Like Jim Morrison. A lot of people. That Twenty Seven Club. Yeah, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. Yeah. I went to um. I went to the hotel where Janis Joplin died. Just because you wanted to see where she died? I just remembered that she died, at the, and I was just driving by. I said, oh, my God, that's the hotel where Janice <laughs> Chaplin died. And I stopped in, and I was, like, looking around. Was her spirit walking around? No. <laughs> um, you, you know, I keep thinking that there's going to be some kind of vibe, you know? Like, that's the amazing thing about... You weren't overtaken by emotion? No. But it's amazing You just needed that, to see it. You're curious. You have a curious mind, yeah. like I do. I mean, like... Inanimate objects are very disappointing. You know, they don't really. Right. They don't really give you anything. I don't. What hotel did she die in? I don't. I don't know that. Fact. Um, I forget. It's um, Peter. You went. You can't. Remember. I know, and it's. I. I know You're so it, smart, but. I know where it, it is. It's up on like Franklin. Oh, okay. So it's in LA. Yeah. I was gonna say, if you went to another city to see this hotel, I'd be a little concerned for you. Well, I did take a trip to. Um, I th- was in Berkeley for a weekend, uh-huh. and I went to see the. Uh, I didn't have that much time, so my one tourist stop was going to the house, the apartment building where Patty Hearst was kidnapped. <laughs> Jesus, Peter! I love the Patty Hearst case. Maybe you would be good in the FBI or CIA. I don't know. Those cases are infatuating. I mean, I can't get enough of these murder documentaries, and I uh, wonder why I can't sleep. The Murder Channel. Like the I'm, murder. Like, There's like a discover- murder channel. Well, like that's what I call discovery. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. There's tons of documentaries. I get yeah. wrapped up in them, and I'm like googling every single aspect. Do you ever think about like writing a letter to the to the guy who's in jail? No, I, I never think about that. <laughs> what the fuck? I always here? go like I always go to write to him like, what were we thinking? Sincerely I yours. Mean- sincerely <laughs> yours, Pete Norman. You know. <laughs> oh God, I bet they get a lot of mail though. Oh, God, they probably had, they, look, um, Ted Bundy has a daughter walking around somewhere. Shit. Could you imagine that? Imagine what your life is like? No, I've never thought about what Ted Bundy's daughter's life is like, but my God, I'm sure it can't be rainbows and butterflies. I think Charles Manson, too, has some offspring. Well, maybe you should write them a letter and ask. Yeah. (laughs) One more fact about um, Basquiat is... You know, that painting Dos Cabezas Mm -hmm. that he did, Um, Andy Warhol, he and Andy Warhol took a picture together on a, a, like a Polaroid picture, and he went home and painted the picture within like two hours, brought it back to Andy Warhol, and handed it to him wet. And that was Dos Cabezas. God. Did you ever see the movie, Basquiat? Uh, I didn't. I have not. Oh, you got to see it. Oh, my God. I... Yeah, I do have to see it. No, I didn't see it. Oh, it's fantastic. It's with that guy, um, Jeffrey Wright. Okay. He plays Basquiat. And, oh, my God. And um, Andy Warhol is played by David Bowie. 
Oh. And he is fantastic. What year did this come out? Um, I want to say early 90s, well, but I could be wrong. That's why I haven't seen it. I was born in the 90s, Peter. I, although the movie I have, is still available. I have seen a lot of old movies because I'm infatuated mm. with it, and I'm always trying mm. to you know, educate myself, so I would love to see that. You know, his, um, his painting, I don't know which one, but 110 million dollars yeah, in soft from Sotheby's in 2017 I think was like the most expensive painting ever to be sold unbelievable yeah you definitely need to put that painting in a lockbox I know <laughs> although I know you didn't pay that much for yours no <laughs> do you an, another thing you're lucky you got lucky with the painting yeah I happened to uh, be at the right gallery at the right time they I w stopped there a few years later, and they said, so we'd be cool. happy to buy back the Basquiat. So cool. Are you, are you an art collector? No. I really think I I collect more like photojournalism. Yeah, I noticed you had a lot of photos in your home. Yeah, it's mostly photojournalism because I don't feel like I have, like, really strong taste in art. Like, in, in the den. I don't my, know, Peter. In my den, I have that print, that Lichtenstein print, and I love pop art, you know, like Lichtenstein. Yeah, I love that. That's cool. But um, no, you have a very like dope style. <laughs> it's very new age, your style. Yeah, I'm very new age in my it's old rad. in my old age. And you're from New York. Basquiat's from New York, I think. Basquiat is uh, well. He certainly. You know what? I love there. I love New Yorkers. It, you mentioned Chicago earlier. I think I'm not. I'm not really sold on Chicago as a city, because. Everyone from there, all they ever say is like, we got deep dish. Yeah. That's all they have to say. It's like, you know, chai or die. It's the greatest city. Everything's so general, but it's like, what are we dying for? Yeah. It can't be deep yeah. dish. It's like pizza casserole is what deep dish is. But New Yorkers, I love New Yorkers because they're so direct. You know, it's like mm. when people from New York are trying to sell you on their city, like they are so passionate. You know, it's like the bodega, like the Italian. You know, I walk 96 blocks as a toddler to get the best Italian food in the city. Like, and then, you know, if you try to tell them you don't like New York, they're like, what do you mean you don't like New York? Are you <laughs> fucking crazy? And then they'll like slap you in the face. And <laughs> this could be one you, of your characters. Oh, yeah. They'll like slap you in the face if you disagree with them. Uh, and then people from LA, they're super passionate about hating New York. Most people from LA, people who are from LA. Yeah. You know, and like Hollywood is here. There's, you know, the sunshine, whatever. And then people from San Francisco, they're foodies, right? Mm. So they always got restaurant recommendations and then they got that bridge or whatever. And then. Yeah, that Golden Gate. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and it's, then, <laughs> it's a reasonably significant bridge. <laughs> and then in Miami, everyone's always uh. like, my drug dealer, they always got drug dealer recommendations. And then right. they got the beach, which, Miami. you know, who doesn't love the beach? But I guess, you know, right. like the Florida part is like the shitty part about that. Miami doesn't even have the class that Houston, <laughs> that Houston lacks. That's how ugh, Miami grows. I just, I don't that know. That grosses me out. People, yeah, Miami's not my favorite city for you sure. Know. But but Chicago, I'm just not sold on it as a city because nobody from there is passionate when they're talking about it. I bow out on that one because I, even though I have like two friends from Chicago, yeah. three friends actually, uh -huh. I haven't spent any time there, like literally yeah. like a day. Yeah, I, well, I'm I, just And I've been in the airport like 30 times, but I, but I, uh, so I, I, you know, like Jerry Seinfeld loves Chicago. He thinks Chicago and Minneapolis are the two underrated cities in America. Not that hit. And he thinks San Francisco is just the worst. <laughs> I see. I hate. I I hate San Francisco. I think that people there are so rude. Really? Yeah. At least people in New York who are rude are interesting and entertaining, and I love that. Well, the whole rude thing in New York is so overrated and overplayed. I mean, you know, <laughs> people are people in New York. If you're a tourist and you ask instructions, people are incredibly nice in New York. New York is a very civil... Oh, they're very... In that way, for sure. I just mean the directness yeah. and the abrasiveness. Yeah, but New York is very... You know, it's a very civilized place, you know? And oh, yeah. If you ask for directions, they'll for sure tell you where to go. They'll give you restaurant recommendations. And you don't... You know, and 
Look, you know, New York doesn't really have to, you don't, if you're, for, if you're in New York, if you're in New York, you don't really have to sell it, you know? I mean, it's one, it is, you know, one of the great cities <laughs> See, of the you, world, but I love Los Angeles, you know? See, you I can mean, tell you're from New York, though, by the way you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't have to sell New York, you know? It's like, no. I mean, you look at Manhattan, can you believe how many buildings are on this little island? It's like insane. It's like incredible. Yeah. I mean, you know, the L.A. skyline has, like, tripled downtown since I moved here. And it's still, like, five blocks of 6th Avenue, oh, you of know? Course. Of course. You know, but I love L.A. You know, I, I, you know, I love L.A. just as much as I love New York. Yeah. Easy. You know, L.A., the, because, you know, a pe people make the city, and for the most part, and L.A. is full of dreamers, and I like that. You know? I like that, too. That's why I like living here is, you know, you have a creative idea. You can yeah. just... Go do it. And people are supportive of that. Yeah. Back in South Carolina, you know, you tell someone you're starting something and yeah. they don't understand it. So they don't support it unless it's tangible. Yeah. They can they can see it with their eyes. I mean, you know, even though, you know, it, there's an unbelievable amount of people whose dreams die here, <laughs> um, you know, they're still going for it. You know, yeah. I mean, they're still they're, at least they're not going to have that regret of like not even having tried. Exactly. Um, you have to tell the story about the guy who you saved who crashed his bike. Oh, because this story ended up on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I just uh, got the check for it yesterday. Uh, hell yeah, Peter. Yeah, it was. Get your money. Get paid, honey. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Because you told me this story as soon as it happened. Yeah. And then you ran into Larry David. You told him the story. Yeah. I'll let you explain it. I was um, driving from Starbucks one morning, and I was going down a hill. Yeah. And as I'm driving down, I see this guy lying on the ground, in, on, the, on the, you know, on, on the road, lying on the ground with a bicycle helmet on, and his bicycle is on the other side of the road. So I see this guy lying there. I stopped the car. I really wanted a second cup of coffee, and I was, you know. Anyway, um, but I did it anyway. <laughs> I get out of the car. Wait, you needed a second cup of coffee to deal with this guy? No, I just I was just driving down thinking, God, I should go to a different Starbucks and just get another coffee. Because um, you didn't like the one you had? No, I just wanted more. Oh, you wanted more. Yeah. Okay. I thought you meant you needed another one to, like, save this guy because you didn't have enough energy. <laughs> uh, I was about four years. Sorry, 911. Hold, hold. This guy's dying. It's like, please yeah. don't die yet. I need to get my coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. So um, I go over to this guy and I say, oh, my God, are you all right? I'll call 911. And he says... Uh, and he's like, he's got cuts on his face and he can't move. And, you know, he's got this helmet on. And so he says, can you call my wife first? Like, he gives me the number. I call his wife. She doesn't pick up. Oh, my God. So then I. How disheartening. Yeah. He, I definitely would have call, told you to call 911 first. Well, yeah. I call 911. And, you know, the okay, so, the, you know, the ambulance and the, the, the firehouse there is not far away from the scene so i'm standing there and i must have missed his accident he he probably went like flying over the front of his bicycle he hit Holy something went flying over his bicycle he landed on the ground and i must have just missed it because there were cars coming up around this bend and like a blind bend and they would run over him i swear to god or would have come very close so i'm standing there like you know just like everybody you know directing <laughs> traffic so, so um, one other thing is the guy asks me if I could bring his, can you bring my bicycle over? She's on the other side of the road. So I pick up the bicycle. It weighs it weighs about three ounces. It's, this bicycle must have gone for like $20,000. Oh, probably. Those like intense bikes. So um, I bring it over. And when I get back, he's taking his helmet off and is lying there with his head just on the cement. So I run over to my car and I get this sweatshirt out of my car and I put, I ball it up and put it under his head. The EMTs come, the ambulance comes, they lift him on to the gurney and he screams in a scream I can hear today. 
as it turned out, he had like several broken ribs and a punctured lung. Holy shit. So they pick him up on the gurney and then they take my sweatshirt and they put it over his, they put it over his legs and shove him in the ambulance. And I'm like, uh, um, uh, and, but you know, I couldn't say anything. So they just drove (laughs) off and, and (laughs) I've heard this story five times. It's It's so funny to me every time. Yeah. And so uh, the funny like, not this one shirt. Yeah, and the funny <laughs> and the funny thing is, you know, like I call his his wife calls me later. She sees that I called, calls me like ten minutes later, and so and I tell her what happened. And she, after everything I tell her, she says, "Oh fuck, oh my, oh." I mean, she's like cursing, like like a, like a sailor, like he's gonna be all right. But you know, he 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 might. He, I think he hurt his ribs. Oh fuck. <laughs> And she actually asked me, is the bicycle okay? Where's the bicycle? Oh, my God. That that was definitely a $20,000 bicycle. (laughs) I mean, I felt like screaming into the phone, like, enough of the bicycle. But anyway, so. He needs um, to get a new wife. So I I called a few days later. I called her to, and she says, oh, he's doing much better. Thanks. But that was about it. That was, that was the extent of the thanks. Oh, my God. Not, Not that I was calling to be thanked, but, you know, like. I was a little surprised, like, you know, not even like, you know, <laughs> Peter, she had my number. You if know, you like, save my boyfriend's life, I think I'd do more than just say, oh, thanks. Well, that's something you should Send you it. a gift. I mean, look, that I came sh- over to your house for dinner and I brought you treats. Yeah. You never show up to someone's house empty handed. Yeah. And I gained four pounds because of those <laughs> treats. Good. That was, that was my plan. <laughs> so anyway, I bumped into Larry David, like. As one does. Again, I, right place, right time. Well, I, I see he, he got a dog. So I see him in the dog park sometimes. He's right, got a his... dog named Bernie. Oh, okay. And um, so I saw him in the dog park, and he said, by the way, you know, I'm uh, starting another season of Curb, so if you want to, uh, you know, the, the door's open for ideas. <laughs> so I immediately I tell him, I got one for you. And as soon as I said, they put the sweatshirt over his legs and shoved him in the ambulance, Larry started burst out laughing. He goes, <laughs> That's um, definite. That's a definite. I'm using it definitely. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. So, and it, you got in a lot it's of... It's weirdly, it's weird though that like after all this time, it still was like kind of very gratifying to get Larry to laugh at, at one of your ideas. <laughs> right. Of course. You know. I mean, he's a brilliantly funny person who wouldn't... It was kind of like flashback, you know, like when he was my boss, you know. Right. Do you think the boss employee dynamic ever goes away um i don't think so i think there's always a little bit of that yeah unless unless the employee like eclipses the boss eventually right which can happen also yeah like if now i was you know if i turned into george clooney i think (laughs) that would even things out there's still time for that you know, if I if I turned into Barack Obama, I think things would even <laughs> out. If I was, you know, if I became president. Oh, my God. And you got, you know, obviously you get paid for ideas. Yes. A lot of people don't know that. Um, you know, you should get paid, you know, right. because, um, you know, you didn't move here because you were stationed in L.A. by the Peace Corps. You know, amen. <laughs> you know, so you should get paid. So, what would your advice be to someone who is a newer writer, who's giving all these ideas to people, but they're not getting paid yet? Um, How do you demand pay? I think be, I think um, you'd have to say, look, if you like the idea, you're gonna have, you know. So just not be afraid. Yeah. You got to. Got to be direct. Say what, yeah. say what you want. I mean, it doesn't have to be unpleasant. It doesn't have right. to be confrontational. Just say, you know, like, this is why I'm here. Speak with confidence. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, it helps to have, like, a little bit of, you know, competitive edge in you, you know, to, of like, course. to get things, you know. Of course. I always thought, like. Can't take a passive approach. Yeah. To success. I mean, I always thought that the 
incredible amount of basketball I've played in my life has actually helped me in other areas, you know, like. That is so interesting that you say that. You know. Because it, you know. I do have this attitude of, you know, if, if I, in the right situation that I'm going to have to kick this guy's ass, you know. I mean, and, you know, that's the attitude of basketball. Yeah, that's know? my mentality. I'm just, yeah. I'm going to kick your ass. Get out of my way. I'm going to kick your ass if you don't get out of my way. Okay. It'll take me to the top. Okay, me and you one on one. Let's go. One on one. <laughs> Next time, Larry David needs an idea. Yeah. Get out of my way, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Have an idea on your. You should have an <laughs> idea on you at, at all times, just in case. Yeah, that's actually very good advice. They told me every time you go into a pitch meeting, it is in your benefit to have four or five extra ideas that you can throw in. Hmm. It's interesting. I always went into pitch meetings and everybody's like sitting down in these chairs or and you usually get a couch or something like that. It's usually chairs. Yeah. Well, it depends on what the office looks like. I usually Usually somehow, a conference table and chairs, but sometimes on occasion it is a couch. I always sat on the arm of the couch. Huh. Cuz I want you know while I'm pitching, I want to be above oh. them. Peter, that's incredible. Thank you for this piece of goodness. It's performance. <laughs> and so you Peter, know, I'm going to start on, sitting on the edge of chairs. You want to be I'm going to be a millionaire by the end of this year. You want to be on stage. <laughs> that is incredible. I never thought about sitting on the edge of a chair, but mm -hmm. baby, you better bet that's what I'm going to do in all my pitch meetings coming forward. <laughs> Try it. You got to own the room. Yep. I mean, some rooms are unownable. Unowner ownable. Ah. But I kind of disagree with that. Well, you never, you probably never pitched to the comedy department of CBS. I have not actually. Oh, God. Haven't hit CBS I yet. I'm sure it's changed since then, but it used to be like, it used to be like pitching in a, in, like, you know, in a funeral parlor. It was so depressing. Oh, my God. One last thing. We met doing stand up, obviously. You're very funny. And you, you didn't start doing stand up till seven years ago, which is incredible. Do you feel like you're constantly reinventing yourself? Um, no, but one of the things I really like about America is the opportunity to reinvent yourself. I mean, I, th I kind of reinvented myself a little bit when I moved from New York to L.A. Yeah. And, you know, like when you go to college, you kind of reinvent yourself, you know, when you go away to college. But I, I don't ever consciously do it. Yeah. You know, like I just, you know, I just... Um, I, I met this girl. So do you know Zara Mizrahi? Yeah, I met her at your book release party, which we haven't even talked about your book yet. You wrote a book. I have a copy of it here. Oh. I read it, I guess, two years ago. Yeah. Whenever it came out. Yeah, Zara got me into stand-up. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. Your book is called Me As Well. Hashtag me as well. It just It's funny. It seems like with the pandemic and everything like that, that you know, the Me Too movement seems like a thousand years ago now. It does seem like forever ago. You know, this is about, two, that book is about events that took place in 2018. And it's, yeah. And, you know, it's only like three years ago, really. Right. Three and a half. And, you know, it just feels like the world has gone topsy-turvy since then. The world is crazy right now. Do you want to give a brief summary of your book before we wrap it up? Um, the book is... I started out my career as a sports writer at the Washington Post mm -hmm. out of college. And so um, at first the idea was like, what if I had stayed at the Washington Post, you know, all those years and actually followed the career path of a sports writer at the Washington Post and, uh -huh. you know, ultimately became a columnist. And a lot of it is also... You know, the book was mostly inspired by two things. A, you know, my love of and cynicism towards sports um, and, you know, my love of journalism and my hatred of, like, cancel culture. Right. You know, so anyway, the character, the main character is based on me. He's a sports, a Pulitzer Prize winning sports columnist for the Washington Post. And uh, he makes a joke one day and going full circle, it turns up on Instagram. 
Oh. And it's about an athlete. He makes a joke about a basketball player who's kind of soft, you know, like doesn't really like physical contact and, you know, they call him soft. And anyway, this athlete is um, on the disabled list for a couple of days and somebody asks what went wrong, what's wrong with him. And this main character says, um, I think he's have, I think he uh, is out three days with a hysterectomy. <laughs> you know, basically the way of calling him a pussy. And, of you know, it's a, it's a joke amongst sports of writers. Of course. It's a joke amongst guys, amongst sports writers. It's funny. I'm not to use the Trump excuse, but, right. you know, but anyway. <laughs> So, so he gets canceled. He get he's and the book the book covers about three days and he's in very big danger of being canceled. And there's a lot of rants about sports and things like yeah. that. And um it's you know, the, the only thing that really nails him down to the way things are in society is his his daughter. Mm, his who won't speak to him. At the end. He's a widower. Yes. You know, his wife committed suicide. Right. Um, and he's got a, his wife was white, but he's got a um, a mixed race daughter because it turns out that he wasn't the father. She had had an affair oh. with an Olympic athlete. <laughs> when The she, irony. Yeah, he took her to Barcelona oh, in 92. Wow. Oh, and um, heart-wrenching. But, you know, he totally is in love with his daughter and she's right. brilliant and she's amazing and... She was kind of my favorite character in the book. But, you know, I mean, it's there's a lot of funny or and or cynical and or, you know, exasperated rants about yes. sports and life in America and everything. Incredible. Well, if you're listening, you can buy Peter's book, hashtag me as well, on Amazon, right? Amazon, yes. That's where I got it. That's Amazon.com. They're a company. Oh, you probably know about it. Oh I'm my God! <laughs> I'm telling the audience about what Amazon is. Oh yeah, because they don't know. Yeah, it's, certainly. It's a tell very, them. it's a very new company, and like they're kind of on the hush hush. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much. Peter Melman, everybody, thank you so much. This was absolutely my pleasure. I loved it. You put capital at seven minutes to drive to my house. I drove here in about yeah. 32 minutes. It took you 32 minutes. It only took me 17. Yeah, but oh, I, I guess I, that kind of I went the mostly on Pico. Okay, yeah. I didn't take the Pentel. I took the freeway, so. Yeah. Peter, take the freeway. Yeah. It's not very crowded this time of day. It's like I didn't really take freeways that much. <laughs> I had a series of panic attacks on freeways, so. Oh, my God. Well, so. yeah, by all means, stay the fuck off of freeways. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, at a time. I had panic attacks. Oh, my God. For the... At, at a time when I just signed, like, a huge second DreamWorks deal. Everything was happy. I had a, I had a great girlfriend, and every life could not have been better. And then I got panic attacks out of nowhere, like, out of left field all of a sudden. Like, Holy I'm driving God. along, and all of a sudden I'm, like, sweating and... Well, that's interesting because you had all this success. All these good things were happening in your life but you weren't happy within yourself, you think? Or you just didn't know how to um, handle it? Or No, I... Uh, it's almost like it was the first time I got to, like, settle. You know, yeah. like, I'd oh. been on this ride. You didn't know what to do with idle time. No, I... It's just like I... I kind of like... Okay, I'm not in the middle of some all-consuming thing right now. I have some time. I could... Yeah. I could go to the gym every more day. I could play basketball, go to the gym, work out, have a trainer, relax, go golfing or yep. something like that. And I don't know. As it turns out, I mean, it's like more about some kind of serotonin receptors or something like that. But, um, but you're good now. No panic attacks. No. But I wrote about it. I wrote about it in Esquire because, you know, like, why not go through a period of like where you're consumed with panic attacks, why not write about it? Oh, of course, I, I wrote about. I love in, that. I wrote about it in the second, per, in the third person. Like it was all he, he. That's he. really interesting. You have yeah, to send I that to me. I I'll link that if you're listening. I'll link it. Send it to I me. I distanced that from. Uh, that's very cool. That's in my. Um, that essay is included in um, another book 
called Mandela Was Late. That was my book of articles and essays. I have to read that. I always send, every time you have an article that comes out, like an op-ed, I always read it. I love when you send it I might have, um, I might have a copy in my car. I'll look. Yes. I would love to read it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. This, this was, was so, so much fun. This was so fun. You're welcome back anytime. Okay. Uh, well, it took me 32 <laughs> minutes, and so you owe me like 25 minutes of driving time. Ooh, good math. I mm. do. Yeah. That's the, that's, the, that's the peak of my math. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks. Enlighten me. Bitch, I be a boss. I got the sauce. No point in fighting me. Demons leave them torch. I run my kingdom. Call me sire. We never taking L's. Only lessons. No, we never counting fails. Only blessings. Never stressing. I said enlighten me. I be a boss, I got the sauce, no point in fighting me Gang, they hyping me, rightfully I am stable, I am able, I am wealthy Full of health, on the rise, I got the belt You got a problem? Check yourself, bitch